Hi, I'm Heather Morrison. On each show, guests share stories from their lives in theater, film, and TV. So grab your tights and tap shoes and meet the geeks in the green room. My guest today is Bill Bentley, musician, record producer, and filmmaker. Bill takes us on a journey through his career from growing up in the Bay Area playing guitar to moving to L.A. and gigging at bar mitzvahs and bars, then later taking the leap into filmmaking. Bill has produced award-winning documentaries, including Gentleman Champion and Sunblock. Most recently, Bill wrote and produced a full-length feature called The Tree Movie, which is touring the festival circuit now. Today, we are here with Bill Bentley in Geeks in the Green Room. Welcome, Bill. Oh my gosh. Thank you, Heather. I, you know, I love the title of your podcast, <laughs> Geeks in the Green Room. So if it's, we're going to free associate, what is this, what is this conjure for you, Bill? Well, it's, you know, I, I'm duplicitous because Geeks in the Green Room kind of says, well, there's a green room involved in my life, which means I'm in the biz. And so therefore I have legitimacy, but I've been labeled, <laughs> but I've been labeled a geek. So <laughs> So I'm I'm really excited about it, and I'm embarrassed. <laughs> Don't be embarrassed. All the best people are truly geeks. In fact, I think everyone probably is a geek. They're either in the closet about it, or they're you know flying their freak um, flag or whatever. But you know, so, sometimes I'm proud of it. Honestly, I mean, you know, when we're talking about like astronomy, or when I'm using. <laughs> when I'm using my mathematics skills in the recording studio, which actually is pretty common. Um, or if I'm just in the mood to be uh, a nonconformist, then yeah, I'm, I'm a proud geek. Um, I was the guy in high school who was in the jazz band. And um, I didn't know that was geeky until I told my wife and she goes, you were what? <laughs> she goes, you're kidding. I thought you were a rock star. Oh well, no, I was in the jazz band. So um yeah, I'm happy to play up being a, a geek and and uh you know it seems like green is a common um color that that people really uh enjoy, especially when they're talking about ecology and so it's it's a good concept. I'm I think it's well crafted title. Oh thank thank you very much. <laughs> Now, I feel like I'm talking to a professor. Like, well, I've yeah, I've already <laughs> exposed myself as more geek than entertainment guy. So, I think we're off to an excellent start, don't you? I I do. I agree. We are off to an excellent start, and this feels so much like a radio show because you have like this amazing deep voice, this Thank beautiful, t- this beautiful timbre. <laughs> now I sound like I don't know what. Um, so. What did you play in high school? What uh, guitar player? Yeah, I was you were a guitar, guitar guitar player in the jazz band. I started playing the guitar as a little kid. You know, I'm 63 years old, so I was born in 1957. So the Beatles hit when I was just a little kid, and my older brother, older sister, they got completely, um, you know, enthralled by Beatlemania and they learned all the songs and learned how to play the instruments. And I was too little. And so that kind of pissed me off. And I said, well, <laughs> maybe, maybe I'll show them and I'll get better than they are. So from the, from the age of probably five years old, 
uh, I made it my life's work to, you know, show the world that I can be just as good as anybody else. And I wasn't going to let um, a little thing like being five years old slow me down. <laughs> That's exactly how it happened. So, so, but, so by the time I was seven, I was just this like, you know, unbelievable childhood prodigy kind of guy because my older brother, my older sister were, um, you know, getting the attention that I wanted. So uh, I, you know, just practiced like a maniac. And fortunately I had, you know, some musical talent came, you know, through my family or whatever. And, uh, you know, that was my uh, mission was to be better than them. And so I got really good, really young. And when I was a little kid, um, you know, I used to play Beatles songs and stuff at school and sing and uh, sit at home and jam on the guitar. My friends would come over and I'd, you know, show them how good I was. And, you know, by the time I was in junior high school, um, it was kind of common knowledge that I was going to be rich and famous. <laughs> common knowledge. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, you could, I mean, you could, you could be my friend in school um, you know, as long as that's what you thought. But uh, if you thought that maybe I wasn't going to be rich and famous, then you couldn't be my friend. And <laughs> so I surrounded myself with all these people who, you know, like really thought that I was going to be, um, you know, rich and famous later in life. And, and I better remember them. So it was a, actually, it was an effective way of getting through difficult times because, you know, being in school is tough and especially for geeks. <laughs> <laughs> nice like circle back. Separate, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Tie it up in a bow. Go right back to me. Another interesting thing about that is that, um, as it turned out, I was, uh, one of those, uh, accelerated, um, kind of students. I was on a accelerated track because they tested me and found out I had this high IQ. So, you know, I was pretty, uh, pretty quick in terms of le learning and I had a nice aptitude for like math and science and, and I was kind of like one of those uh, smart kids and boy, what a setup for geekdom is that, you know, <laughs> if, if you're a smart kid in school, you're like by default, um, you know, a geek. In fact, that was before they had a term. They didn't yeah, it was nerd. Term. Wasn't it nerd? No, Did you guys have nerds? You know, I'm dating myself. It's before nerd. They didn't have the word nerd. You know what they used? Uh, victim to the bully? No, what? <laughs> brain. You're a brain? Brainiac. Nerd. I remember Brainiac. That I'm not that later. much younger than you. Yeah, so. you're way younger. I, I'm 55. Well, you know, I, I don't think that's true. I think your parents lied to you. I think you're a lot <laughs> younger than that. Thank you. <laughs> it's all that clean living and boredom. No. <laughs> Good. Anyway, so yeah, so I went through school and, um, you know, I was sort of the childhood prodigy guy. And, and, um, and so that's, you know, and how I ended up becoming this guitar player. And, um, and in high school, I joined the jazz band. And I also was singing in the uh, operettas. The oh, really? Seriously? Yeah, I was. I was the Fodolja. What's What's that? In Oliva. The <laughs> were, You were Dolja. Everyone I, I know has done. <laughs> everyone I know seems to have done Oliver. I've done it twice. 
Oh my gosh. Well, you know, I also did Andy Get Your Gun and I was uh, Frank Butler. Oh my God. That's one of my favorite musicals. It's so good. Mm-hmm. It's a great part. And you were perfect for it. You have the hair, you have the timber. Wow. Well, no, I did. I did have kind of more of a baritone voice at that point in high school. And so mm-hmm. um, the song I remember was The Girl That I Marry will have to be as soft and as whatever as uh, and then I forget the rest. <laughs> but then I jump and start dancing. And even if I forgot the words, they'd think that I was supposed to be dancing at that point. And then I come back in when I remembered them. <laughs> I'm sure you got away with it. Well, I did because I was going to be rich and famous. Remember? <laughs> so everybody had to be nice to me. I need to get you a t-shirt that says, Rich and famous on it. <laughs> uh, almost. Almost rich and Well, famous. put it in parentheses. Yeah. <laughs> wow. That's such a great show. I saw Debbie Reynolds do it on a touring, touring company in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Probably in the late 70s, early 80s. And I remember thinking, like, she's too old to do this because she probably did it when she was in her 60s. But, you know, she has a beautiful voice. She still does. She's still alive, right? <laughs> oh, God. Um, yeah, so you went from, so you were in the musicals and the opera. Did you do Gilbert, Gilbert and Sullivan operettas? I don't in, think so. I, I just did two in high school. We did Oliver and Annie Get Your Gun. Musicals. Musicals, musicals right. Yeah. And then from high school, what happened? Uh, from high school, I started uh, playing in all these cool funk and disco bands um, and uh, went to the local community college, DVC, for your listeners who don't know, that's Diablo Valley College located in Concord or Pleasant Hill, I think. So you're uh, local. So you're local. I am. Local. Yeah, I grew, up, I grew up in Lafayette. Ah. Talk about geek potential. <laughs> <laughs> You're so, just set up, just teed oh, off. Oh man! But anyway, so I studied music, and uh, it just so happens that I was um, in the same um, group of musical, uh, you know, gifted guys um, at DVC. Who those guys ended up doing, you know, great things like Pete Turi, who went to Ray Charles, and uh, Mark Russo, who went to uh, the Doobie Brothers and the Yellow Jackets, and um, and uh, Curtis Olson, who um, I think uh, I'm trying to remember, he was like a touring guy who was, you know, very well known and very successful. So these are these like jazz and um, funk monsters on their instruments. And so I was the guitar player and these guys were playing their instruments and, and we all kind of like hung out together and were in bands together. So at that point, I joined a band called... Uh, uh, East Bay Hotline, which was Frank Biner's band. And Frank Biner was a partner um, with uh, one of the guys from Tower of Power, Doc Kupka, who was the baritone sax player. Anyway, so this was like kind of a mini Tower of Power band. And um, we played some really cool clubs and some really great gigs. And then from there, um, I fell in love. Oh yeah, where's the mute? Don't you do you have music for this? Like the you know like the orchestra. Maybe you could compose. Will you compose some and I'll put it on the podcast? Yeah, you, I don't know. Can you afford me? No. 
<laughs> oh, of course. Anything, anything for you. I <laughs> oh, we'll have to talk. Maybe <laughs> for you, dear. Yeah, I, I hope I don't get into trouble. L- luckily, I don't have sponsorships, so I'm sure they won't come after me and have to bleep out all the stuff that. Oh, copywritten right, right. intellectual property. <laughs> okay, I'll stop singing. Um, unless I make it up, you can, can you can sing your stuff. Yeah, well, we're you know, covered with that. Right, I'd have to maybe make some up. Um, so let's see, where'd I leave off? I've completely forgotten. So you did a bunch of cool stuff in college, and oh, you fell in love. That's what oh, happened. Thank you. See, isn't that funny? My brain, my brain just went blank right when I said that. It's the Saturday oh. blank brain. <laughs> I fell in love and then uh, started having babies. But in the meantime, I moved to L.A. Oh. to uh, Yeah, because, you know, it seemed like the thing to do at the time. I was kind of going there back and forth doing showcases and various activities and music. So really, my whole thing was music and um, trying to pursue this career goal of being a um, kind of a, you know, uh, Stevie Wonder slash Beatles slash songwriter producer and um i you know i found out pretty early on that being um known and traveling around and being a touring musician and all this kind of stuff really wasn't for me um i was a little more shy and so i didn't um i didn't get the kind of thrill from being um quote unquote famous that uh, a lot of people got now, when I was a little kid, it would have been perfect because, you know, at the time, um, that was the most important thing to me. But, you know, once I was married, having the kids, the house and the payment and, uh, and you know, just having like kind of a domestic life, um, being on the road for months at a time just didn't appeal to me. So uh, my pursuit at that point in L.A. was just to find as many different ways of making a living while still being in music as I possibly could. And so I played a lot of uh, what are called club dates or casuals or, um, you know, weddings and bar mitzvahs and uh, conventions and nightclubs and jazz clubs. And, uh, you know, I think I weddings. I did a lot of weddings. And so I said weddings twice. I did a lot of weddings. Um, and uh, fashion shows and, and duos and singles and every kind of imaginable gig where you would need a guitar player who sang, which was me, mm-hmm. uh, I was doing in LA. And then I also taught privately. And what's interesting, Heather, is that the combination of playing all of those gigs with all these musicians, um, you know, all over LA and oftentimes, I didn't know the songs, so I had to fake it. And um, learning that skill was super important later in my life. So mm-hmm. when I would sit down and, and uh, be at this gig and they'd start playing a song I didn't know, then I had to <laughs> mathematically right, mm-hmm. find the key. You know, I'd have to find where they are, and I'd have to kind of blend in to where they are with my guitar helping me, you know, locate the various changes that are going on in that song. And um, I discovered a couple of nice little tricks and shortcuts for myself to achieve that. And then as a private teacher, I became really skilled at being able to do one-on-one 
under the subject of music with, you know, another guitar player who's learning. And um, for many, many years, I taught dozens of students every week, um, some, you know, celebrity kids. Um, and um, that was in Malibu and Pacific Palisades and Brentwood. And I did that for years and years. So what happened was I developed another skill that's uh, paid off for the rest of my life professionally, which is doing music one-on-one assistance and in a sense um, psychology, which is what you do as a producer. So this is all leading me up into, um, you know, one of my main job, uh, uh, what is the definitions or what's the right word? One of my main... Yes, thank you. What vivre? I don't know. <laughs> yes, one of my main job titles is is production guy, producer, and uh-huh. you know my company is called Bill Bentley Productions, and so being a producer is convenient because that's the name of my company. Or is it the other way around? I can't remember. But <laughs> the point is, is that I am a producer, and being a producer when you're making records, and I've made a bunch. The trick is you have to be good at psychologically working with someone and helping to, let's say, guide them through the world of making a great record. And oftentimes, like 95% of the times, the artists that I work with are also the songwriter. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of adjustments and help that I'm able to give to these clients of mine and much of my skill that I learned as a guitar teacher and as a casual musician in LA comes into play and uniquely enables me to do better work. Yeah. I know from working with you, I luckily got to work with you. Do you know, it was like eight or 10 years ago. I've kind of lost track with Molly and I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I kind of knew what I was doing. No, I didn't. I didn't know what I was doing, but I was juggling so many things that I, I didn't really have time to be super nervous. I mean, I was, right. but it was kind of like, it just kind of had to get done. Mm-hmm. And luckily because of our mutual friend, Aaron, I asked Aaron to <laughs> introduce you to me and you were, I was lucky enough for you to compose some music for me for my, for my short. So I was really lucky. And I was that your studio, if you've never been in a studio for me was kind of intimidating. I'm like, ah, you know, <laughs> Where do I stand? What can I touch? What do I say? How do I communicate? I mean, I remember I kind of knew what I wanted for that one song. Yeah. And that helped a lot because the song that you produced for Molly, uh, you know, the end of the short, it, you have it on your website too. Here is Molly's theme, the sweet song that Bill composed, sung, arranged, and played for my short film. Imagine me 
I know firsthand what it's like to be helped by you. Let's put it that way. <laughs> oh, well, well, thank you. I, I, t- yeah. I take that as a, an extreme compliment. And, <laughs> and um, you, you know, should. I, I hope that when this is all done, then I can, you know, take that sound clip and just, you know, use it as a way to lull me to sleep at night. <laughs> <laughs> That's what your wife is for. But, yeah, but, but yes, out of compliments. <laughs> yeah, you can, on an endless loop, you know, making your oh, ringtone. So, yeah, so much <laughs> even better. Yes, a ringtone. Well, you know, you're and, awesome. You're awesome. Uh, right. You're awesome. <laughs> <laughs> My God. And let me just say, because I remember early on <laughs> that when we first started working together, I remember how impressed I was with your voice. You know, and because you really have a strong voiceover uh, voice and, and, you know, for commercials and what have you. And we did a couple of those um, sort of demo commercials. Yeah, that was fun. Oh, that was such a fun experience working with you. Well, your your voice was just so pro and I'm really stoked about it. In fact, I'll tell you, you know, in the mean, since then, I've done all kinds of um, network voiceover stuff and, um, you know, I'll tell you about it in a minute, but the thing that I just did, did want to mention that, you know, I've always had you at the top of my list when somebody wants a female voiceover. Oh, thank Um, you. Most of the clients that come in already have someone attached before they get Yeah, there's that. And you know when I first <laughs> when I first met you, um, I was pretty brand new into um, film production. I had worked in the music part of it um, when I was in LA, um, a couple different things. But um, like I, I wrote a main title theme for a for a feature, and then um, I I was. Um, atmosphere, you know, kind of like a music extra guy, somebody, a guitar player on camera for a commercial or two. And um, what did we do? There's this couple different things. In fact, uh, I was, there was a show, there was a show called FTV, which stands for fun television. Okay. Okay. It was a spoof. It was a spoof on MTV in the eighties and it was a Chris Beard production. Do you recognize Chris Beard? Mm-mm. Yeah. Remember Friends? Yeah. Yeah. Well, he did Friends. Oh, my anyway, goodness. So this is before Friends. And, um, and so he was producing FTV. And so the opening had a band, and I was the guitar player in that band. Wow. So I was backing up Stephen <laughs> Bishop, and it was this really cool um, – it, it, was, it was basically the pilot for the for the network FTV show, which did get picked up and it was, you know, reasonably successful, but like a Saturday morning cartoon kind of replacement. And um they just did these spoofs on on videos, on music videos. But the point is, is that, you know, I did the pilot and I was right there on camera. It was fantastic. And I was so excited about it because they were showing the uh, the series. And, you know, I thought my smiling little face would be in the front. 
but it wasn't. They took it out. Yeah. So we, I, I never did appear on camera on the television on that particular project. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so that was my background in LA in film and TV. It wasn't extensive, but it was mm-hmm. enough to get me excited. So when I was up here, um, you know, later in my life, like let's say after 94, which is when I moved up here, um, it was, I, I think more like the late nineties, I made the decision that I wanted to explore, um, getting more involved in film and video production, particularly film production. So I sought out, uh, and this might've been through Aaron's, um, suggestion, but I sought out scary cow. And oh, you did. You aren't aware of that. Scary Cow is based in San Francisco, and it's an organization that's dedicated to organizing groups of people that can create, um, you know, short films and uh, video projects and what have you. And these these films uh, give people like myself an opportunity to try out different jobs in the filmmaking business without having to go through the normal channels. So um, all, all I had to do was just show up and they said, well, we're you know looking for somebody to do this. Or we're looking for somebody to do that. And uh, in my case, they wanted someone to do, I think it was the music or the sound design or something. But anyway, so I volunteered for that. And um, it gave me an opportunity to really meet some um, powerful uh, filmmakers that later in life, um, I'd be able to uh, work with in more professional settings. And because, you know, Scary Cow is, is not for profit. You're just doing it for the experience. But anyway, so that's how I got it, you know, started in earnest in filmmaking. And I made the decision about then that I would um, try making my own films too. And that was interesting because I had no equipment, no experience as a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. I was just a music guy. But you were also a producer. So you actually brought a lot of skills, like that skill you were talking about, about how to work with people, mm-hmm. the whole psychology. You bring all of that. One brings all of that to filmmaking because you have to work with a lot of different personalities and you have to have vision, which I know you have. So you brought a lot of things. Would they say soft skills? Would that be the kind of way you would talk about that? And then a lot of people had their own equipment or had a specific skill. So if you don't have that skill, you could tap that in, in Scary Cow. That's what Exactly. Happened. Exactly. That's what I was yeah. going to say. That's the beauty of Scary Cow. I realized, well, wait a minute. You know, I don't have to have all the equipment. I just have to be able to bring my equipment, which was recording studio stuff, and, um, and my skills which mm-hmm. was being a producer and apply that to the project. And then someone else would have camera and someone else would have lights and someone else would be an actor and someone else would be a director. And so everybody would bring their own stuff to bear. And um, yeah. Can you turn that off, please? Just, this uh, is very just, important. Oh my God. God. Well, you know, I on airplane. God. Ironically, that was the notice <laughs> that my wife's podcast has just launched. <laughs> yeah. This is so meta. That <laughs> was the notice that my wife's podcast just launched. Well, congratulations on your wife's podcast. Do you want, do you want to give a plug for the podcast? Oh, on my podcast? <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah, it's, um, 
it, it's called Cosmic Takeout with Deb and Ange. And what is it about? It is their bantering back and forth about life and and how it um, seems to relate to the cosmic kind of more spiritual, um, more um, self-actualized aspects of, of being, you know, women and um, going out to lunch and sitting and talking about things that are a lot deeper mm-hmm. than, um, you know, how's your salad? <laughs> Sorry, I smashed the mic. Oh my Sorry. God. I so hard not to do that. Problem. No, I'm just kidding. I, know. I mean, I, I would fire myself if I was firing myself. But <laughs> Bill, I got, Bill got then, so excited, at everyone. The, at yeah. the end of their podcast, um, <laughs> they have this portion, which is about cats. Because, you know, we have a cat, she has cats, and then, and then they always have a guest. And usually the guest has a cat or something. And so they, and so they, they swap stories about funny cat things. Okay. But people and, like this. It's, they like the format. They think it's hilarious. I think it sounds really funny. I'll have to check it out. Your wife, is your wife Deb or Aunt? <laughs> what, my God, your... I thought you said dead. <laughs> <laughs> See, I got to work on my articulation. It's from being inside by myself all the time. I have a mush mouth now. Nobody can understand a fucking word I'm saying. Is your wife dead? Wow. Why is that so funny? I don't know. It's not, but it is. It's not funny. But it is. Deb and Andrew. No, she's very much alive. Um, I should have said, what is your wife's name? Should I say? Her name is Angelina and we call her Ange. And then okay. her friend's name is Deb. And, you know, interestingly enough, this is not wife number one. This is number two. <laughs> so. Dare I ask what happened to wife number one? <laughs> well, you know, we're still great friends. Okay. Um, we, we She's have, not dead. Let's put it that way. You didn't, you know. Right. You know, we, we did have two children together. And, um, hmm. you know, and then as oftentimes happens in these situations, you know, we just kind of went different ways. And. Um, and, but it's great that we're still good friends and I saw her last year. She lives up in, uh, Shasta up in that area and is just enjoying her time up there. And I'm, I'm very pleased to know that the people that I've shared important eras of my life with, I'm still in contact with and they're doing well. Sorry, I muted myself because there's a lot of noise outside. I don't know if you can hear it, but somebody's gardening. No, Last time. Oh, you can't? Okay. Uh, so we left off, I think, doing, uh, talking about uh, how I got into films. Is oh, yeah, you got into films. I was going to ask you, so I didn't realize that you had joined Scary Cow. Did you actually physically show up for the meetings and I did. You know, for the I pitch festival? In, oh. Uh, I, I think, now correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't they have like a two-day or a three-day or a 24 hour contest or something. Was that a scary cow thing? They did 24 hour, 48 hours or. That was separate. There's a, there is something called a 48 hour film contest. Effort. I'll have to look it up. Uh, I did do that. I think you mm-hmm. did some, you did that for me too. You did two for yeah. me. You did that one, which was exhausting. Uh, we were at, we were at your studio like all night long. Yeah. That was the last all nighter that I was able to pull off. <laughs> I remember you saying that you're like, I'm not doing this again. <laughs> no more all nighters. I was like, I love you guys, but, uh, but no. I'm, I'm just too old for this. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, yeah, we did two together. 
But anyway, so I did I did a couple of um, projects such as that, you know, independent films and shorts as a um, sound designer slash composer and whatever I could do to participate within the skill set that I had. But what I did not do is I did not um, function as a filmmaker. I'd never done that. But as the years went by, um, I got more and more interested in making videos for songs, so music videos, which seems to be a very powerful and very common tool, especially now, for promoting recordings. And since I came up as a you know record producer, um, I always had hundreds of uh, active records and recordings that I had done over the years that some of them ended up getting music videos and some of them didn't. And I found that the ones that got the music videos did better, were more well-received and, and more popular. So I wanted to be able to provide that service for my clients. And one of the things that uh, occurred to me is that if, you have a uh, recording client or, you know, recording artist and they have a unique um, kind of uh, life or let's say uh, just a, a unique hook of some sort in terms of just promoting the artist. If they have something that makes them unique, it's easier to get attention and then you can make the songs kind of reflect that. And, and then you make the music video reflect that. And so the first project I did this on was this, uh, this guy, Tim C., who came to me and wanted to uh, record some of his country songs. And so we were recording this country song. And I you know, started talking to him about his life, kind of get some background as, as a producer, you do that. And, and he, he told me that he lived on a boat. And I go, you mean like on purpose? <laughs> I, I didn't get, I had no idea. So he's, he's apparently what's called a liveaboard. And uh-huh. a, live, a liveaboard is a person that lives like on a big yacht. It's just a preference. They, they live in a marina rather than an apartment somewhere or a house. They live on the water in a, in a large sized, you know, maybe a cabin cruiser, but you know, 40, 50 feet or a big sailboat. And, and it's actually, it's a way of life. And I didn't know anything about it. So I started talking to him about it and, and it sounded really intriguing. And, and I pitched the idea to him that let's do some uh, songwriting about what it's like to be a liveaboard. What is it like? You know, the people and the lifestyle and everything about living on a boat. And it just seemed so interesting to me. And um, so he started writing all these songs about what it's like to be a liveaboard. And um, we made a couple of videos um, utilizing uh, people that I already had met um, who had the equipment to do the filming. And so uh, I bought Final Cut, which is the editing software for uh, film and television. And I started learning how to edit and started editing these music videos. And then I decided to make a documentary using the same skills, just slowly kind of stacking my, um, you know, my skill set 
on top of what I've already done. And so the first documentary um, I made is called The Liveaboard Life. And it's just an expose on what it's like to be a liveaboard. And we interviewed all these people in his marina and him, and we used his songs as the background. And I was checking uh, last week, it's had 16,000 views, 16,000 views on YouTube. You can look it up, The Liveaboard Life. Wow. That's congratulations. Yeah. That's fantastic. 16,000 views. Yeah. I mean, how do you get that? You know, well, I, I guess it's just, you know, it's a subject that people were interested in and it's unique. So I, I found that, oh, okay, well, that's how you do it. This is how you get the marriage between recording artist and music video is you make the subject matter something other than love. <laughs> because, right? Because there's like a billion things about love or about, you know, life or what it's like to be, you know, existentially upset. And, you know, it's like I, I really found that if I could just locate some niche that is unique and interesting that that I can create this combination of documentary filmmaking with uh, a recording artist. Mm-hmm. So the next recording artist I, I did was not a documentary, but it was um, about uh, eating disorders. So this, this girl in high school actually um, came to me with her parents and said, okay, well, I really want to pursue music because I need a distraction. And um, she's really talented, good writer, great singer. And, and so we started doing these songs that were based on, you know, kind of the teen angst and what it's like to struggle with eating disorders. And, uh, <clears throat> and so we made a couple videos that supported these, um, you know, kind of high school uh, difficulties that girls go through. And um, those ended up being like really cool. And, um, and then she's off in college and whatever. And so, you know, that, that whole portion of her life, I think is less important to her now than it was in high school, but it, but it just, you know, for this point, it just represented the um, combination of a unique story, you know, eating disorders, unique story, and putting it to visual uh, music videos. And, and so that created, I think, a, a better presence. And what it does is it helps uh, develop a promotional success for the song itself. And, you know, because if you just do a song, you know, it's like, okay, well, great. Who's going to listen to it? And when, you know, I mean, nobody sits in their living room and puts a record player, you know, puts the needle on the record and listens to some, and and people aren't really listening to the radio like they used to. And, Mm -hmm. and having, you know, a cassette tape or an eight track cartridge or a record or, you know, people don't really listen like they used to. Now it's all visual. So I found that taking my business and making it very much emphasized on music videos and film um, seemed to be the next logical choice. So then I met this guy, Ron. And Ron was a race car driver. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, I met this guy, Ron, and and he he, want, he had this kind of successful racing thing going. I've always been a NASCAR fan. But anyway, so he had this successful racing adventure going on in uh, Altamont Speedway. So 
he wanted to be a recording artist, but he didn't really have the budget. And I wanted to be a race car driver. <laughs> I'm sorry, but that's usually like, <laughs> that's not usually the problem. It's usually like the talent or the voice. And oh, he, he had the talent and the voice. Oh, he, he did. The budget. Yeah, he uh, did. Oh, okay. Yeah, this race car driver, Ron, he had the talent <laughs> and the voice. He just didn't have a budget. Okay. And uh, funny. yeah, and, and I wanted to be a race car driver just as a fantasy, you know, just one of the things that, yeah, yeah, bucket list thing. And so um, I cut him a deal and I said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll make you a rock star. If you make me a race car driver. I was muted. I was muted, muted myself because of the gardening going outside, but I I just wanted to stop and say, and I wanted to say, I laughed when you said that. Well, I miss your best laugh. (laughs) You want to to take it again? Yeah, take two. Take two. So uh, that's what we did. And so he trained me to be a race car driver. I trained him to be a rock star. And um, he started writing all these songs about racing. And so we started co-writing them and started producing these recordings. And it became a hit. So all of the songs about racing that we were doing were from the driver's perspective. And they're very like kind of rock and roll ACDC. And they started getting played at tracks all over the world in um, actual race events in front of thousands of people in between uh, the wrecks and the car racing and, and all the, you know, all the excitement. There was some dead air time and they would have music or whatever, but the music wasn't specifically targeted to racing and our music was. And so we started getting unbelievable amount of attention and placements and we did some touring and we um, started uh, playing live at racetracks. And um, in fact, I'll never forget, there's this one time where we were playing live at the racetrack. And then um, after the first set, we jumped into race cars and raced on the track. And then at the end of the race, and we went back and played another set. It was just classic. And, and so the, the, the whole marriage between this rock music that was a, about racing and being able to perform live at racetracks, et cetera, et cetera, um, and have our music used for films and television shows and radio shows as background, I mean, it's still happening today, um, was, was really because we were in that unique niche. So that's the thing that has always been successful for me. Unfortunately, the guy died. Ron died on the racetrack. He had a heart attack. Oh, yeah, that's sad. And, and yeah, and it was sad. And and so, uh, but it was almost, you know, I mean, honestly, it, it is what he wanted. If he was going to go, he that's the way he wanted to go. Was on the track, and that's exactly what happened. So, <laughs> um, the story of what him and I achieved in, in racing together. And, you know, I ended up becoming a a legit race car driver and won races and, and all kinds of stuff. Anyway. So after he died, I made a decision to make my next documentary about our story. And so that's where the documentary gentleman champion was born and gentleman champion ended up being, you know, another, uh, great project, award-winning, 
Um, and it actually debuted on the big screen. Um, we had a big premiere here in Danville, California at one of the local, you know, full size theaters, packed the place. It sold out because all the race fans came and, and right. And, and all the people that have known me for so many years, they came, my, all my celebrity friends and whatever, they, they just packed the place to see this film I'd made about racing. That is awesome. And it's yeah. right, the whole unique, the whole unique niche. I've never heard of anything like the story about like the making of would be as interesting as, you know, the documentary you made, I'm sure. Well, it's interesting because yeah, a lot of the, um, you know, aspects of that documentary included uh, obvious uh, behind the scenes. And, and even like uh, there was a, there's a couple of uh, green room stories that took place um, because we interviewed musicians that knew Ron. We interviewed racers that knew Ron and um, they were all part of the documentary. And, you know, when you're going to be on a racetrack, the vast majority of your time you spend in the pits of that racetrack. So, you know, the, the, the name of the band actually was, was Ron Pastana and the pit crew. <laughs> that was the band. How perfect is that? So most of the time you're not, you're not racing, you're in the pits. And so, and that's the green room for racing is the pits. And so, yes, yes. And so, and believe me, there's plenty of geeks back there in the, in the, in the pit crew with, they call them grease monkeys, but they're just geeks. They're geek monkeys. And they and they have the wrenches and they have the gasoline and, and they're running around and it's just hilarious. So these characters ended up being really interesting in the film and, um, you know, all their, their stories and what has taken place over the years for them. And so now, um, fast forward to today, um, I, my newest most, uh, I think, fascinating project is that um, I'm producing uh, records for uh, a local TV celebrity by the name of Dan Ashley. And Dan Ashley is the Channel 7, ABC 7 News lead anchor. And he's been doing it for, I don't know, in the Bay Area for over 20 years. And he's very successful and has all the Emmys and all that kind of stuff. But anyway, he's also an aspiring rock star. And, uh, and so I'm his producer. And what we've been doing is we've been making, uh, so far we've been making uh, music videos in support of the songs that we write. And uh, he has a band and he goes around and plays all these venues and charitable fundraisers. And um, he's quite successful because he's well-known. So these songs get lots of exposure. And the videos that we're producing currently are ones that match the, the uh, theme of the songs and the niche for Dan is primarily, you know, his experience as a news guy and what he has seen and what he has learned and his his take on the world, you know, and because he has a unique perspective. He, you know, when you're involved in the news game, you know, as a reporter or what have you, you get to see things that nobody else gets to see. And you get to consider things that, that uh, most of us don't consider because we're just doing a different kind of a life. So it, it really is a behind the scenes of what goes through the mind of a, of a news person and how he views the world. So it's very optimistic, very positive. 
Um, very up with people. And, um, you know, he's that kind of guy anyway. So we've been making these uh, cool videos in support of that. And, uh, oh, and the other documentary I did was Sunblock. Are you familiar with that one? I saw most of it. And it was really interesting to watch it because I remember it's kind of like with different main things that happened, like the big earthquake in 89, people say, what were you doing during that eclipse? And so it was really kind of fun to look at it again. Well, you know, this was actually, as you know, this is another documentary. Yeah. And it's, it's actually, it's the last documentary I did. And I don't know if I'm going to do any more. So, oh, really? Why, why yeah. not? Well, it's, I'll tell you. <laughs> so anyway, the, quickly, it was a documentary. Yeah. It was based around my brother who made the decision that he wanted to rent a big ass motorhome, drive up to Oregon, bring his <laughs> whole family, force his whole family up to Oregon to watch the eclipse. Cause he's kind of this astronomy guy. In fact, he got his degree in astronomy at Cal. And so he knows about that. And he said, okay, we're all going because it's our last chance before we're dead to see it. So, well, in, in, in the, you know, in the contiguous United States until I don't know, God knows when, but certainly it'll never be this close. It'll never be this close. Just zip up to Oregon, zip back to California along with, you know, I don't know, 50 million other people, but it was quite the adventure. And I just so happens at that point I already had all the equipment. So I just brought it all along. And I shot the uh, the video um, and turned it into a documentary, and it was a hit. We got on TV. We um, we won the best Oregon documentary film contest. Won all these awards, and it was just kind of a a travel log, really, of all these characters going up and watching the eclipse and coming back. But it it ended up being like really well received. And the reason that, you know, I'm, I may or may not do any more documentaries is because I made the decision that I wanted to do a narrative. Oh, yeah. Fiction. So, yes. And so, um, uh, I, I did one, I finished it and it's in the film festivals now and, and it's already won a couple awards and it's, um, it's interesting. It's, it's called the tree movie. The tree movie. You want to talk a little bit about the tree movie, whatever you can tell us oh my god yeah so it's i mean pretty much it's it's based around the um sort of the uh, concept that trees have a special i guess relationship with people you know and um i i've never known anyone who didn't have some sort of interesting affinity with trees and and it's kind of well documented that there's something special about them and and it's almost they're almost like human-like a little bit in a way. And uh, I got the inspiration because um, I saw, uh, I, I might've been even online or on TV, but I saw this kind of commercial about, well, if you die and you get turned into ashes, you know, here's your choices. And we have a choice where we will squish your ashes <laughs> into the root system of a sapling and we'll plant the tree so that you're, your ashes will then go and be part of the tree and you will be alive again through the tree or whatever. So I thought, well, what if people started hearing the trees like they were talking? That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So I sat down and I wrote a script. I've never written a script. I have no idea how to write a script, but I was on vacation in Arizona in the desert and I just sat (laughs) 
I just sat on a chaise lounge. Is that the right word? Chaise? Yeah. Sat on a stage and, and wrote this, and wrote this script, wrote this strip called the, called the tree movie centered around a, uh, a, a psychologist who keeps having all these patients come in talking and on her podcast has podcast in it. All right. Talk, yeah. Talking about they're hearing trees, they're hearing trees talk to them. And hmm. then the psychologist starts hearing them. So the, the movie is basically kind of a, a thriller in a way, because it's like the psychological thing where all the people are starting to hear trees. And they think they're going crazy. And um, so I'm not going to, you know, reveal the, the end of the movie, but um, it's already won some awards. And I'm still waiting to get through the process of finishing up the um, the circuit so that it I, it can be released. Well, congratulations. Thank you. That's that's a huge thing. So you wrote the script and did you pretty much do everything? Like you I produced did. it? I mean, except starring as the main female character you'd probably did everything else. I mean, you had a crew, right? You had like a small I, crew. I, you know, I had a very small crew. I actually ended up, as you say, doing everything myself. And um, there's advantages and disadvantages, as you know, but I did have the, uh, I did have the soundstage because my studio facility has a lot of rooms and, and I was able to use those rooms. And then um, I also, uh, you know, uh, I have all the equipment, the lighting and the audio and the cameras to be able to shoot the, the, uh, the film. And so basically I did everything, uh, myself that I could and it saves money, time. And the best part is you get to do it your way <laughs> on and on your schedule too. So I had some phenomenal actors, unbelievable talent. And, um, in fact, I will give you a link to the uh, festival screener so you can take a look at it or the cast oh, great. Crew screener. Um, and, um, but anyway, it's, it's something I'm very proud of to be honest with you. I think at the ripe old age of 63, I'm sort of, um, uh, in contemplation mode creatively. I'm, I'm a lot more, uh, interested in kind of maybe waiting to see what jumps out at me in terms of inspiration. And in the meantime, I'm still, you know, very active making records and doing uh, film projects for other people. Mm-hmm. But as far as doing my own, um, I, you know, I almost feel like I've, you know, how do you say, it? like I've, I've, I've kind of done all the stuff that I wanted to do. You know, I did these documentaries, I did um, the narrative, and I've, you know, I've achieved some measure of success on these. And um, they were like really fun to do, but I'm telling you, Heather, it's a lot of work. And um, you know, I, I don't know if, you know, I mean, I think you get this. I don't know if I'm surprised anymore when I see, (laughs) when I see all these uh, films that are directed by one-time directors, I mean, great films, Mm -hmm. but they're directed by one-time directors. And I always were, was curious about wh- why is that, you know? Well, because, you know, you're going to take a year out of your life and that's going to be all you do and all you are. And uh, it is very, um, help me with the right term, taxing, um, consuming. demanding, <laughs> consuming. all consuming, all consuming. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, and you, you know, you have to be really up for that. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not making millions of dollars uh, as a filmmaker. In fact, you know, at, at, at best, uh, I'm breaking even, although the promotional um, advantage is obviously rewarding. But, um, you know, if you're not doing it for the money, it's hard to get motivated to spend an entire year. I don't want to use the word suffering. Um, <laughs> Toiling, struggling. Are you Jewish like me? It's okay if you say suffering. Well, there's there's moments. <laughs> But, you know, to me, it was never, honestly, honestly, I never did suffer. I just, I, I, I found that it was more work than I ever possibly could have imagined, possibly could have imagined. And so the sacrifice, either in, you know, time resources or even finance resources was substantial. And I'm glad I did it. I'm proud of what I did. But, um, you know, to do another one, you know, you'd, you'd have to somehow talk me into it, either with a um, I don't want to say F load. Okay. An F load of money. You could talk sure. me into it with an F load of money or some other motivator that would, that would cause me to do it. But I do have projects coming, but they're, they're nothing as big as, um, you know, these documentary films or the narrative film that I just completed. They're more, you know, music videos and, uh, webcasts and, um, commercials and industrials, you know, smaller projects, but they're all, um, financially, uh, rewarding rather than just for um, fun, you know? Yeah, passion projects. Correct. That's what they call them, passion projects. Yeah, and, and now your passion projects are still in the offing or no? Well, I've been focusing on this. The last thing I made was M- Molly. Yeah, Molly. Yep. I had focused on studying screenwriting and TV writing, and I did a draft of a screenplay that I'm not – super thrilled with. I haven't abandoned it. You can always go back to it. So yeah, that's kind of what I've been doing. I, I enjoy doing the podcasting because there is a lot of production elements and I'm a one man band. Mm. But when, but when I'm done, I've produced, even though you're bringing all the talent, as far as I'm concerned, I'm sitting here like just enjoying myself and asking a few questions here and there. Um, but each guest is different and I learn something new or I read a book with my last guest uh, who was talking about a memoir that he had written as well as his career as a storyboard artist, for example. And Carrie was about her acting career. So I enjoy the variety. I like asking questions. I like talking to interesting people. So podcasting is pretty fun. It'd be interesting to see how this kind of, if it goes anywhere and if it doesn't, then I have my own little passion project that doesn't cost me too much to do you know, as you know, from your wife. Yes. Well, no, that's right. And you can go as often or as, you know, infrequent as you want and you can take breaks and it's, it's not even like there's an obligation because there's no network saying you got to deliver X amount of shows by this date. And um, Mm -hmm. the, the actual logistics of production are pretty darn easy. Yeah. Compared to a, a film. Right. Um, there are things that I'm layering in, like I do have some music I put at the beginning and the end, and I record an introduction, and then I already did an intro and an outro that I put on every episode, plus the actual interview, and I put it through a sound process. And so it, it many hours goes in. I mean, I probably could do less, but I'm trying to get as good a product as I can. So it's kind of a balance. So if I feel like I'm ready to pull my hair out, I say, okay, now 
we need to finish this. You have to stop being precious about things and let it be imperfect. And it's hard to be perfect with something that I have only a certain skill level at too. And I'm learning all the time, which is something I enjoy, you know, with this process. Yeah, no, I'm with you. That, that was my experience with filmmaking. And uh, fortunately um, my sense of perfection is uh, overpowered by my um, obsession to finish. And so, you know what I mean? So instead of And that's short- good because so many people stop because they let so many things stop them and if you have to, if you can keep your eye on the goal is my goal is to finish it by a certain time as well as I can. Right. I, you know, I I like to compare it to travel. Like if I'm going to go drive to let's say Phoenix. Let's say I just happen to want to drive to Phoenix. And I'm going to travel to Phoenix, right? I'll get in the car and I'll start on the road. Yada, yada, right? I'm, oh, I better get gas. You pull off, you get gas. And then you go, oh, look at that cute little museum. They go, no, I can't go to the museum because I have to get to Phoenix. You get back on there and you get hungry. Well, you got to stop to eat. So you stop, you have to eat. You sit down, you meet some interesting people and they're like, hey, come on over. We're going to go swimming at the lake. And you go, uh, okay, well, but I got to get to Phoenix. You see what I'm saying? And so the point is, is that there's always going to be these distractions. Some yeah. of them, some of them are necessary, yeah. but not all of them. So you need food and gas to get to Phoenix, but you don't need swimming at the lake and, you know, visiting the museum else you might never get to Phoenix. Right. Yeah, but you might, know what? It might be a premise for a film. I don't know. I know. Well, <laughs> I, I, it's very indie. Uh, okay. Here's a random question for you. Ready? Ready. What was dinner like around the family table when you were a kid? Oh, uh, it was Swanson's and TV tables, TV trays. It was Swanson's TV trays and watching uh, Wonderful World of Disney or uh, or the, um, you know, the uh, I'm just trying to think of those shows. But, you know, it was all black and white TV. And the newest, coolest thing was um, sitting and watching TV at night because it was new. I mean, it's in the 60s. That's, you know, very little. uh, it had been around for just a few years, and so especially good programming, and so very little was known about the potential of what entertainment could be at night. And so um, we do that, and then uh, we w- there's a piano in the house, so then we would just sit around and sing songs, and and some would play the piano, some play the guitar, and we'd be you know jamming, singing songs. And the only other thing that really sticks out to me as far as, you know, the dinner table was just, you know, arguing with mom about whether or not I have to do my homework. (laughs) (laughs) That's really funny. Um, I I ate some of the Swanson dinners too. Not very often. My mom was pretty good cook, but if maybe if she had a date, my mom was single uh, for most of, she still is single. (laughs) Um, do you have a favorite Swanson meal or uh, do you remember? Uh, mine, was meatloaf. mine was meatloaf. meatloaf, right? And is it the one that had the little apple cobbler at the top? No, brownie. Oh, the brownie. The brownies yeah. always tasted burnt to me. Maybe we always. I love burnt them. brownies. You know, it's like it reminds <laughs> me of my childhood. It's so nostalgic. You bring me a burnt, you bring me a burnt brownie and I'll do anything. <laughs> You heard it here, ladies. You heard it here on the podcast. You you can have your way with Bill Bentley for our burnt yeah. brownie. Any- <laughs> <laughs> that 
that's a lot of assonance. Assonance are 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 consonants. Bill Bentley, Bert, Bert Brownie. Brownie. Oh my God, it's like a like a lip thing. Um, Bert Brownie Bonanza. Yeah, and I, the peas. Why do the peas always get in the mashed potatoes? Oh, I didn't right. Like always. that. Yeah. I didn't like it either. Yeah, I think there was a fried chicken one. Yep. Maybe it was a fried chicken with a apple cobbler. I think you're right. And the brownie was with the meatloaf. It's amazing that our bodies right? live through that because, you know, they didn't <laughs> so, have those regulations and God knows what we were actually eating. Maybe that I can still feel the indigestion. I mean, you know, that feeling as a kid, like it gets stuck around your breastbone and you're like, I don't know what it was. Oversalted. What kind yeah. of fats were they? Anyway, it is interesting. <laughs> it was part of my childhood too. Um, but yeah, that would, I'm, you know, that's such a great question. I'm glad I asked you that question. What are you doing now? Like, what are you doing for fun and uh, project wise? What are you working well, on with COVID? And Yeah. Well, thank God I still have work, you know, so yeah. the, the most of the work that I do um, right now is the work that I've always done, which is producing records, you know, and um, I have songwriters that have been with me for years and years and years and recording artists have been with me for years and years and years, and they're still active. So I have two systems. I have, um, you know, my main recording studio, which is a large facility in Concord. Um, it consists of, you know, Hollywood style, big studio, you've been in it. And then also, uh, you know, a full like um, set and soundstage, that uh, is upstairs that I use for my last film that has furnishings and, you know, full lighting, all kinds of cameras. So all that stuff is still intact. And um, in addition to that, on, on that location, you know, I have preparation rooms, green room, um, smaller rooms that one of them I used as a set for um, filming the podcast sequences in my new film. And then I also have a remote system. Oh, what's that? Uh, and it's the one that I'm actually uh, talking to you from right now, which can go anywhere. And so I, I just bring it with me in a backpack. That's the nature of how these um, recording uh, equipment uh, systems have gotten smaller, more efficient, more powerful. Um, you know, if we can do everything we can do on our cell phones, it only follows that a recording studio could fit into a backpack. And it certainly does. And so, um, you know, I can take it anywhere and I can hop on a plane and go to another location, set up um, what I need to set up to record people there and then um, fly back and then do the post-production on the record um, here at my house, if I like. So I'm doing um, several different projects where... I'm actually working from my house and it makes it a lot more convenient and, um, you know, a lot safer as far as, uh, location, you know, I don't have to be out in the, um, in the fray <laughs> as it is. And, um, but I still am active in the, uh, in my main facility in Concord and, and I have clients that come in here and, and, and work with me there and do their vocals and, and their guitar performances and pre-production, post-production, uh, film, uh, et cetera. So I'm actually very fortunate that I can stay um, pretty much as active as I always have been under the circumstances. Mm -hmm. 
that's yeah, that is lucky that you have you have work that has adapted to the situation because mm-hmm. a lot of people that's not the case. So it does provide a certain amount of continuity in your life, you know, and a sense of stability to be able to do the same kinds of activities that you could before. Yes. In fact, even last night I was in a band rehearsal. My, my wife has a blues band. It's called Midnight Sugar. And uh, right now we're just a, you know, a rehearsal band, but the intent is to go play gigs and do videos and all make records and all that. And we're getting to that point close. Um, but uh, to be able to sit in a rehearsal with live human beings playing live music together is very uh, refreshing under the circumstances because there's so much um, of the way that life used to be that has disappeared. And so it's, it's a very um, satisfying to be able to experience some of the aspects of normal life that, um, you know, are still available to us. So we do our social distancing and we sit and have our instruments and we play the music and then, um, you know, it, it, it ends up being really satisfying. That's great. You're really lucky yeah. to do that. You know, you could do some live streaming if you wanted to include like a virtual audience, if, if you wanted to do that, give some people some pleasure with your music. Yes, you know? we, uh, that, that's definitely in the offing. You know, I, yeah. like I said, I got, you know, the cameras and the lights and et cetera. So it's just a matter of um, getting the logistics. You know, one thing is that, you know, I'm not only um, kind of semi band leader, but I'm also the lead guitar player, you know, obviously. And, and it's, um, it's taking place in my facility. So, you know, I do have, like I say, the cameras and the lighting and the equipment and the audio and everything. But um, as you well know, there's a point where you're just wearing too many hats. Yeah. And so right now I just, I, I like sticking with just being the guitar player, but at some point I think I'm probably going to have to uh, become the, uh, you know, the director and, and the camera operator and the sound person and the, and the editor and the uploader and the live stream switcher <laughs> and the. <laughs> you're like, now you want to take a nap after listing all those things you're going to have to do. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't want to do that. I know. Thank you so much for coming on Geeks in the Green Room. It's been so much fun to catch up with you and hear about your different projects. It's really great to see you again. And, and I didn't know about your beginning. So that was really fun to, to hear your story. Thank you. Thanks for sharing your time with us today. I hope you enjoyed this podcast as much as we had making it. Check out the show notes for info and links mentioned in the show. You've also been listening to Scott Joplin's The Strenuous Life from 1902, generously provided here by Ragnar Helsbong's wonderful website, ragsrag.com. Share the love by giving us an awesome review and rating on Apple Podcasts. And please pass the show around to your friends and family. And remember to subscribe here wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. If you want to get into the act, like the Geeks in the Green Room Facebook page. I'm your host, Heather Morrison. See you next time on Geeks in the Green Room. <laughs>